Hello, hello, and welcome back. You're on the 20th step of the post poet pop staircase, and this is another first-of-its-kind episode. I keep rethinking how I want to begin to introduce today's episode, but I'm finding it simplest to just let a stanza from the poet Lao Yang do that work. In his poem, Imitation of Autobiography, from the collection P-Poems, translated by Lin Zhu and Joshua Edwards, and published by Circumference Books in 2022, Lao Yang writes, At night, each person is lifted into their own starry sky. To meet a self who has been resurrected again and again, to encounter the boundlessness of darkness. I find that that stanza does attempt a summation of the comprehension of today's episode that features the work of the three brilliant poets all involved in that stanza, Lao Yang, the poet who wrote the original text in Chinese, and Joshua Edwards and Lin Zhu, the poem's translators. You'll hear Lin and Josh read a few pieces from Lao Yang's pea poems, and we'll discuss what they found in and how they traversed translating Lao Yang's work, then we will focus on Joshua Edwards' work in The Double Lamp of Solitude, published by Rising Tide Projects, also in 2022. And third, we'll swing over to the work of Lin Zhu and her latest And Those Ashen Heaps, that cantilevered vase of moonlight, put out by Wave Books in 2022. Last year, when I saw that Lao Yang's pea poems had been published in English, I was so excited to read it as selfishly I have a deep interest in the poetics of sewage and drains and how they might directly be tied to the onslaught of convenience. But Lao Yang's work is not at all that. Well, it, it is and it isn't. Lao Yang's work is many things, and as Lin says in the episode, it is deceptively simple. So you have to watch out, because it will creep up. Lin's and Joshua's translation is tremendous, and we're so very lucky to be able to access this work in English. It wouldn't have felt right to feature the translators and not talk about their own work, so following the presentation of Lao Yang's work, we will then hear second from Joshua Edwards, who is becoming known for taking very long walks, or having taken very long walks, sometimes at residency, and he situates his book of lamp poems and other poems in the middle of the triad of Friedrich Holderlin, Federico Garcia Lorca, and Miguel Hernandez. Lin Zhu has created work through her latest book that moves text into a multiplicity of possibilities and presentations. In fact, her book was turned into a performance piece that was also physical in visual nature at Mocha Tucson, and you'll hear a pretty ironic anecdote about that in this episode as well. There's so much to be said about all three of these books, but I'll just let the episode ahead hopefully take you there. Thank you all very much for listening, and without any further preparatory statements, let's head on down to Texas and get this journey started. Down. 
马尔法的第二个早晨，火车从童年出走，不知去向。我背着故乡，持足追赶。三十年河西，三十年河东，在马尔法，火车一再试图唤醒我，可我的梦还没做完。志意留在早晨，火车带着梦和故乡远去。早晨和我留在马尔法。Second morning in West Texas, the train left my childhood, not knowing its destination. Hometown at my back, I try to catch up, running barefoot. Thirty years west of the river, 
thirty years east of the river. In Marfa, the train tries to wake me again and again, but my dreams, not yet over, are determined to last until morning. The train carries away dream and hometown. Morning and I remain in Marfa. I recently read that there's this high-speed train, kind of first of its kind, um, at least in China, but maybe in the world, in the Fujian province, like 400, it can go 400 kilometers uh, per hour, something like really fast. And, you know, and, 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 and then, of course, in this poem, the train tries to wake me again and again, but my dreams not yet over are determined to last until morning. And I, I was imagining Young writing that in Texas. And then I was thinking yeah. about how in China they're developing like incredible high speed trains. And then I was thinking about um, this trying to wake me aspect and, and the multiple like, you know, kind of panoply layers of symbolism there and how a train is both a reminder of industry. And yet it's also feels sometimes archaic. Mm-hmm. It's, trans- it's transporting people and goods. And there's just so much, there's just so many layers of symbolism when we think of trains and then we think of these two cultures and these two nation states, etc. And kind of seeing him at the center, like writing a poem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's also interesting because like the train, I feel like has a, a kind of a, strange relationship both to marfa and to chinese people because mm. a lot of the railroad workers when the trains would come through here were when, when they were be, when the trains out west were being built were chinese workers and i don't think you know yang is not referencing that but you also get the border patrol i remember a few years ago there were um i can't remember how many like six or eight chinese nationals who uh, were apprehended I think in the in the graveyard here, and that who had crossed over um, from Mexico, and oh yeah, I you know that, that, about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's yeah. there's the, I mean that history is very much kind of you know erased. There was a great exhibition at Ballroom Marfa, um, which was kind of about the the history of Chinese people in the desert regions of, of the Southwest. And for us too, it was just so poignant because it's like that's the moment really when like our experience of the poem is, uh, uh, yeah, our experience of just being in the same space where Yang was writing that poem, you know, it's so similar. And it's like, he's writing a poem that we could have, you know, written um, because we're in the exact same room that he's writing it about, you know, waking up in. So yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's just amazing to kind of be connected to a per- oh, like a person through a book and through a space in a poem in that way. Like, it's, yeah. You all were saying that he wrote that poem in Texas, yeah? Yeah, in our in our our bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I really love what you said about the the figure of the train as being all. I mean. That it is an actual train, but it is not a train. You know, like that it is yeah. both the train and a representation of other things, yeah, uh, of industry or of. I think that that's one of the beauties. I think of thinking about Young's poems and living with Young's poems is they are deceptively simple. You know, mm-hmm. he's not like using a lot, and it's interesting because it's the train left my childhood. 
And then it's, I'm trying to catch up. So you're thinking like this, what is this train of childhood? Because it belongs to this person, but then this person is both behind it and in front of it and west of, and, and you imagine the train is along the river and then, and this person is both like west and east of the river. You know, it's this strange kind of, you, you don't know where to place the speaker that obviously at the end you 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 kind of return to remaining in Marfa. Very strange kind of uh, vertiginous uh, movement, which I think speaks to kind of the the layeredness of of historical time or ge- geographical um, time. Well, there's this other symbolism too, where he's like uh, the speaker that is is maybe asleep, right? And, oh, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I mean, also kind of flickering, like sleeping, waking, and in that sort of strange state. And that and that seemed to be symbolic of so many things, let alone like, I'm not allowed to wake up. I'm not allowed to, to, uh. to you know, participate.
岂不所天问？绵马绵何香？长风拂广也，碧绿转青黄。大荒穷人迹，知影间地天。岑杰无情有，空心照云寒。At the outset, questioning heaven, where to rest one's horse. Trade winds blow across the plains, transforming deep green into greens and yellows. Wasteland bereft even of the poor, lonely as a cloud between the earth and sky. Relentlessly they travel together, hearts empty as the dark zodiac. Lynn, you mentioned Benjamin earlier, and whenever I think about the task of the translator, I, you know, I think a lot about this line from Benjamin of,、um, you know, an echo of the original can be awakened in it. And because you all are, I guess, a, a translation team, I would love to know about the process of like awakening echoes, but also shining a light on this because there's a line in one of the poems,、uh, "Lonely as a cloud between the earth and sky," which certainly. Reminded me of the Benjamin line in some strange, enigmatic way. So I guess when you are talking about the lonely as a cloud, is are you hearing Wordsworth? Is that why you? Yeah, and I'm also hearing there's actually there's a very similar line from Raul Zurita, but when Raul Zurita <gasps> writes about it, right, he's writing about, of course, Pinochet, which kind of, I think, in terms of, I don't know, I guess modern living under the Chinese state. Oh, maybe there is some similarity. When we were translating this, Yang was in prison, so we could not correspond to ask. I mean, there's so many allusions,、um, but also this one in particular, because of the regulated verse, it was. It, it's like reading. It's like、uh, this is clearly a classical poem. Question mark. You know, it's like there's. There's very metrical beat.、Uh, it's a you know five line a five、um, sorry five character、um, uh, units, and when you read it, it does feel like it is in classical Chinese grammatically. It feels more kind of in that way. So I feel like when you hear the Wordsworth,、um, there might be a sense where it. You know, you feel like it is more of a classical landscape. I mean, there is a lot of decisions where we made we don't even know they're good decisions, but I think we were playing, and、um, and Josh is really good at this because I'm kind of again I'm quite literal, especially with the Chinese I'm like very literal. So he was the one I think that is able to activate because he's hearing me explain it and he's like hearing something else in there.、Um, So that was really fun to be able to say something, and Josh would be able to hear something that beyond what I was saying into Young's work, like、mm. into the spirit,、yeah. into the spirit of the work. I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was like it was interesting to work as a team because we, you know, I guess we've done some maybe a few small things like this together before,、um, but. And we lived in China together, and we lived in Taiwan together. But you know, my Chinese is like very minimal. I can't read Chinese.、Um, you know, I can understand a, kind of a little bit when people are talking about me. I can 
a porter or a beer or whatever. You're not a drink beer anymore. But, um, but I, you know, I know, I know Young, and I know kind of, and we've had a lot of conversations with him, both of us. Um, and I translated quite a few things before, and so I kind of knew the questions to ask, and and I I have a little bit of uh, kind of background in some of the things that he's interested in, like politically and religious um, things too. So, so yeah, it was really fun because it's like, and I could hear things that Lynn, because she's so close to the language, like couldn't hear, like whether it's like a, you know, a homophone that she might kind of gloss over or, um, Mm. or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Like just, working through these poems over and over and knowing that, that you know we yeah like it's it's always going to be an echo and it's going to be an echo kind of through our imperfections and especially since we couldn't ask young while we were translating about anything but that i guess that made it like and there were several things like him being in prison that kind of raised the stakes for us but I think to go back to your kind of the echoes that you were hearing here, I think it's really beautiful and interesting because if it's the Wordsworth, right, the that particular poem, he is actually thinking about the French Revolution. He's walking and he's thinking about the French Revolution. And then thinking about Zurita, of course, like the um, the landscape is what makes a certain kind of executions under Pinochet possible you know, the way that, that right. those executions mm-hmm. are carried out and where the remains are still today in, mm-hmm. whether in sea or in land or in desert, um, the disappearances are are actually, they remain. I mean, yep. they are they are a part of the landscape. And I think that the, the landscape can actually, um, they're simple and they're kind of, you know, sky, cloud, earth. I think that it, there's something about that that is very universal in the way that yeah, we turn yeah. our gaze. Yeah, where we turn our gaze when we are uh, kind of spiritually confined.
旦上路，路就再也看不到尽头，死也不是终点，而只不过是一枚苍茶绝墙的人形路标。路在大地上颠簸伸展，犹如牧童手里散漫的鞭子，抽打着草木、虚空，以及虚空中飘荡的灵魂。势必是良强的，应变不受阻于脚下呲牙般的蚕食，也难免失足于灵魂的坑洼。路拉扯着脚，脚拍打着路，渐行渐远，渐渐不见。Once on the road, the end of the road cannot be seen. Nor is death an end; it's just a sudden road sign, in human shape. The road waves and winds across the earth, like an unruly whip in a young shepherd's hand, lashing the grass and the void, and the soul that lingers in the void. Stumbling is inevitable, even if the chasm doesn't get a hold of you. It's hard to avoid losing your footing in the pit of the soul. The road drags the foot; the foot smacks the road. They drift apart and gradually fade. Did you all have a direct process in terms of all right? Let's translate this one poem with the three separate sections too. They are quite di- they're quite unique, and <laughs> I'm imagining like over time, of course, some you know there must have been multiple changes too. Yeah, I think we started doing that, but then when we kind of when the urgency came and we needed to sort of work more quickly, I I basically just like translated very literally, like that was my role. I went and translated literally, like what the what the language was before we could even. So was, I just kind of gave a draft, and I was talking to my dad about it because I was like, "Well, what are the classical references, and if you can hear any of the references?" So he was really helpful in in kind of pointing us in in certain directions. But he was like, "I don't, you know." There are certain moments where he also felt like there were evocations, but he couldn't really. He's like, "I don't actually." He when he was searching for us, and he's like, "I don't think there is," but you know, again, there there's the sensation,、uh, and he could tell us sort of puns and stuff that that were there. So basically, like I I worked on a literal draft, and then I sat down with Josh, and we began to have conversations about. How to open up that language?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, you know, Yang is doing some things which are like totally impossible to mimic in in English. And one one is、um, demonstrated by this poem、uh, called, which we call "Civil War: The Chinese Language," in which he uses traditional characters as well as like simple simplified、um, Chinese characters, and he's like juxtaposing those. Um, in this really, you know, interesting way, and so we had to kind of figure out how to do something similar without making it feel too forced. And、uh, so, yeah, it's like looking for together, kind of like seeking strategies for dealing with these problems of translation,、um, but then also like, tr- yeah, trying to figure out how important an illusion is, or you know, why does it feel like there's something. In this space, 
that we're not getting and then investigating, you know, asking at asking his dad or like talking to another friend of ours who who, you know, might have a background in classical Chinese or or know more Chinese. I have a question for Lynn, which I'm actually I forgot. What did so we titled that poem, you know, in, in we used the phrase West Texas and his title he says Marfa, but he the the phrase he uses I'm trying to figure out what characters he uses to say Marfa. What and what? Uh, it's a horse. Okay. Um, R is a sort of more of a. I mean, it's just almost like a sonic unit. Yeah. Hmm. Fa is um uh, has like a legal component. Okay. So yeah, so you know, I mean, that's that's what's one of the amazing things about like Chinese, right? Is that you can. You can choose so many different ways to um, translate or to 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 make uh, the sounds of a word in Chinese from another language, right? So he could have chosen a whole lot of different ways to say Marfa. So the characters that are written can also just be moved into sound. So you could have a ma and an r and a fa. Or is it, is that yeah, totally, so that so these yeah. so, so those sounds have to be occupied by real Chinese characters that right. that are not 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 only but their work the work that they do uh, would be like homophonic you know translation transliterations of yeah. but they are actual you know words that actually have meaning. Right. Yeah, there's three characters, um, and I think that's what Josh is saying that he could have chosen perhaps any three characters because there's so many words that sound the same in Chinese that he could have show, chosen from yeah. kind of a wealth of other characters, but why did wow. he choose these three? Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm also saying that there is probably a standardized kind of uh, phonic or, you know, right. it's like these are the words that signal that this is actually kind of a, a homophonic moment. Or, right. you know, like but a, it's a song. But yeah, as, like as you sort of a really famous example that Lynn has pointed out of uh, of somebody translating into Chinese from English or from sort of corp like corporate speak or product speak is how they choose to translate Coca-Cola into Mandarin. Right. That, is, that's very clever. You could say, you know, there's like a million ways you could translate Coca-Cola into Mandarin, but the way that they do it is, is they, they say ke, 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 le, which means can be thirsty can be happy oh my god that's that's pretty amazing I yeah mean, so it ha it's yeah <laughs> wow and in terms of i mean i i could imagine the coca-cola marketing department is like holy shit how did this fall in our laps they just hire wow. really you know they just hire good you know ad people or good good yeah marketing people who know how to yeah translate because right. that's the thing right you have so many you can do that for so many things if you wanted to like my the name i gave myself when when i was when we were in shanghai which delighted my students because i couldn't speak chinese otherwise you know my name is joshua and i so i would my name i came up with is joshua which is like this is me or this, yeah, this, oh and they were like, uh, you know, they thought that was really hilarious. But, but I could have translated Joshua in so many different ways. I could, you know, uh, um, 
I could have made even more of a fool of myself, you know? So, so that's, that's the amazing kind of, uh, like you can also create, you know, so many rhymes in, in right. Chinese, right? Because so yeah. many words are, there are so many homophones, there are so many. Yeah. But then on the other hand, it's like, there's tones. And so you can like play with tones and things like that. So yeah, it's, I guess all that is to say it's, that you know you could have a very different translation of this book also that I think would be um, really interesting to read. So I hope so- sometime down the line somebody retranslates it.
thing I'm, I'm curious about, what I wanted to kind of make sense of is how poetry on the page doesn't make any noise necessarily, like, you know, physically, mm. but even kind of the thought maybe of piss or peeing, the act of peeing is noisy. Also in the work of translating, right? You've got this whole, like, even in that, in that moment of like, these are piss poems, I'm a piss poet, call me a piss poet, right? It's like already has this sound mechanism, but then the concept has like a totally different sound. And so then your work as the translator um, <laughs> is, that, is that sound component as well. You know, that initial poem, which is the introduction to this notion of the, you know, the piss person and the pee poems. Yeah, I think having the way that he sets up uh you know piss like with that sound right like with that that um well he piss. says it's like a uh what is a juicy meatball yeah right yeah, bursting, exactly. yeah. bursting yeah. in the mouth so it's like it's so out, completely yeah. um it, it asks you to occupy it asks you to like put it in your mouth yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. like to actually yeah. act <laughs> with your mouth and i mean but 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 it's funny because of course like that's what the meatball is called in chinese per, because you when you eat this meatball sanyonyowen it's supposed to like actually burst in your mouth oh, right it's wow. like like soup dumplings let's say you know it, there is uh, a burst that's a sort of but it's yeah. it, but it's a again i think it's funny because it's quite literal as well mm -hmm. It's like that's it's also a good instance of something that's so hard to translate, right? It's like, yeah, that 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 feeling of a food, right? It's hard to it's hard to to get at that universally understood feeling of a food. Like it doesn't it's the way that you describe it, Lynn. And yeah, it's as, called a it's called a piss meatball. Well, that's just the the name of the meatball, the dish in in yeah. Chinese. Yeah. And I think that what you say is, you know, I think that uh, different languages play different games. I mean, English, there's plenty of games that the language mm -hmm. plays. It's just not the same kind of games. Mm -hmm. So you just have to sort of find a different game for the language to play. It's great to like know the the person that you're translating. I mean, it's both great and difficult, right? But because you can sort of I guess you can kind of do a little bit of that work that an actor does, right? You kind of imagine like, okay, well, I know that Yang like thinks of, thinks this and this and this has happened to him, and we have had a conversation about this, and you know, maybe there's a maybe there's a little bit of like, you know, uh, Wendell Berry in there, and maybe hmm. but maybe he's also like Bakunin and Duchamp, and so you can kind of take these these reference points and these these uh kindred spirits and sort of try to build you know a new a new character through which you can speak in english with some of the same kind of sentiments but then also try to convey that kind of the unique aspects of you know his his poetics and and the fact that he's you know he wrote these poems he doesn't think of himself as a poet and he also doesn't think of himself um as an artist right he i've in an interview he said you can't really make art in these conditions i'm paraphrasing but you know you have to essentially like kind of create the conditions for art to be made we have to just create those conditions and not not think artistically so i think that yeah there's there's that there's also that trying to like get out of that mode of like writing or or translating a poem and you're translating a pee poem right you're trying to 
to think about how he's pushing back against the form of of poetry or the the, the mode of poetry too so if there's anything that you all would want folks to know about this book um you know i know there's so much but if there's like one thing or something that you you want anyone to know i mean i guess one of the things that has been really great is to see how appreciative like young is of the re- like having readers um and how you know how much that has kind of lifted his spirits um and yeah just the fact that um yeah poetry is uh you know can be something other than what we think of it as and you know even like for me as a poet i thought i kind of had at least my thinking about poetry down but this is one of the books that has changed my way of thinking about how to relate to poetry and what poetry can kind of do just for somebody trying to think through through difficulties and think about the world
lamp of revolution. Like the small light that will confirm misunderstanding as a great shadow behind a small person, some crimes stand apart from themselves to become laws, and then flows the blood that washes clean a great multitude, but only after their tragedies have ended. And so one way of life consumes another as the future takes revenge on the past to save it from a history of resentments. What confusion is there always in the way that one would speak of who one was, of their excesses and wants, these contagions often confused with life? The world changes, but not the way the people in it change. The better the teacher, the less useful they become with age, as each epoch invents the means by which the next will destroy it. God is the sun, the sun has set. It rises again, then re-disappears. Maybe we could just talk about like how you came on the concept of revolution. It can mean all these things that aren't necessarily like political revolt. Yeah, so I think that I think that I had written this poem, one of the first, maybe the earliest poem in this book that's in that form. Although I have, I have poems that are lamps in prior books as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the lamp of mutual aid, and so I had written that one, uh, which sort of points in the direction of re- rebellion or political uh, unrest from a working class perspective, and and it was very much inspired by like kind of this time when I was working at a restaurant. I dropped out of college. I was working at a restaurant in Boston, and 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 lived living in an apartment with with a friend and so so anyway so that was like that poem sort of i think set up this other poem the lamp of revolution i wanted to go like further into those feelings but also sort of like explore like the the personal feel like feelings not necessarily my own but just like thinking about revolution on uh you know on on the on the scale of uh, of an individual thinking through it like over the course of of time and how yeah revolution can mean all these different things right just kind of thinking about it as as change but also thinking about it as like you know what does one do when one realizes that like kind of the definition of the state is is, as trotsky discussed like you know the the entity which has a monopoly on violence or, or i mean his discussion of that was more nuanced than that but that's kind of what he gets saddled with or I mentioned Benjamin Fondaine, and that's something that Fondaine, I think, uh, talks about, too. So On that line, the, the world changes, but not the way people in it change. And, and something, mm-hmm. well, that, number one, that, that made me make note of Holderland's O Island of Light, and how that O, like just the O, the expressive letter sound, kind of represents like this, both this yearning, but also, in general, how... Uh, a, a human being walking through darkness needs something, needs someone else, needs something, needs light, needs guidance. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how, as a species, it seems like we're the most like awakened we've ever been. We're, mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody is in one way or another woke or anti woke, etc. We're all very aware. Information's flying at hyper speed, and yet it seems like we're also flying 
you know, at hyperspeed into fascism. Right. But I don't know that change is happening. And so that line that you have, the world changes, but not the way people in it change, is mm-hmm. really, really layered. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that I was uh, driving out to the landfill or the dump here to uh, to take some dried up like weeds out of the back of the truck. And, and as I was driving there, uh, it was like this strange juxtaposition of like looking at the mountains and then, you know, having this kind of physical labor. Um, my dad and I are like building some some bookshelves and, and we're working on our house and things right now. And and then there is this this discussion on the the only radio station in town, which is the the public radio station, mm. about the synthesis of it's not even the synthesis of it's the creating uh animal cells in an artificial manner in order to create uh, meat. I believe I can't remember oh, yeah, exactly yeah. what the article is called, but it's something like like embrace the taste of unicorn meat or something like that. It's in it's in like uh, one of the you know the Atlantic or one of the one of those yeah. Yeah. Um, magazines. So they were talking to this woman and it's a staff writer for them, and uh, she's a vegan, and she was just going into the science of creating uh, you know they could create an essentially creating in a test tube any sort of cellular meat that you want and i was just thinking about like how awful and like terrifying a way of like dealing with these problems right because the big problem is for from her perspective right that well meat has all these ethical complication problems and Mm -hmm. um and also it's terrible on the for the environment methane etc i think i'd heard something about recently about how enormous um, number or percentage of the animals uh, in the world, the mammals in the world, are humans or or domesticated animals and livestock. It's like you know, by far the overwhelming biomass is it has to now has to deal with like humans' consumption or uh, our pets or us. So, yeah. um, but at the same time, it's like, is that really like the best way to deal with it? Is just like creating she was like oh yeah you know and they say that we could even create like sparrow burgers or you know these it was just (laughs) the most grotesque and terrifying way so i guess and thinking about you know holderlin also and and his sort of love of uh i mean there there are several voices in the book that kind of harken back to these kind of like like small is beautiful, live simply philosophies, and and I and I feel like on the one hand, you know, I, I definitely uh, there are so many things about politically and ethically and about humanity that seem to be moving in the right direction, but then there are also these things which um, the revolutionizing of the world is happening in in different ways, and they're not they're they're quite often at odds what one learns about the world and then you can't fit it into your kind of worldview trying to hold in intention these yeah these different ways of seeing the world i guess you know negative capability just would be the best bookmark
Don't you know you're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know you're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds Poor people gonna rise up and get their share People gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 A lot of the lamp titles encompass, to some degree, abstraction, like style, art, poetry, and then revolution, the poem that you read. And I was just curious how you arrived at the, the kind of subjects or concepts for each lamp poem. I'll like rewind a little bit just to kind of set it up. So the, the genesis of this whole series of these lamp poems was the occasion of a, a, a film by our friend Charlotte Moth, who's a really wonderful artist who lives in Paris. She's, she's um, British, but she lives in Paris. And, and we were at this residency in Germany together. And um, she asked me if I could write some texts for uh, actually two films um, at different times. But for both films, I ended up writing these things that I called lamps. And, and so that was kind of where the initial form came from, was like she, she, her films were very much interested in, uh, in architecture and light and objects. Um, and so after I had written these initial poems, uh, it just kind of made sense to me to just keep going with this form. And, and it became a little bit more uh, rigid and formalized as I went, went along. Like I found the kind of length of the, the, the poems, you know, they're like 24 lines. And then I 
usually have eight syllables per line. It's just kind of like that uh, constraint. And then the, the ideas for the, uh, the, the subjects or the, the titles would just be something like it would just kind of be inspired by the occasion. So, or, or whatever it was that I was looking at. So I wrote a lot of these at the Hungarian pastry shop in, in New York, which is right around the corner from our house. And so, yeah, it, it might've been inspired by like some other book that I was reading that I had with me at the table, or it might have been inspired by some people that I overheard talking or, or some, something that I saw in the street that day, or just maybe a, a big subject that I wanted to deal with. So yeah, a lot of them are these kind of abstractions or a memory like uh, the lamp of rest stops is, is definitely a is a poem in the book that was just a, kind of a, a memory that i wanted to see if i could riff off of another poet's work that that had a kind of a similar that's that's actually gerard de nerval poem that that is sort of similar in its setting and then i have a nerval translation in in the book so so yeah also i was in conversation with with different poets your use of a lamp first it made me think of diogenes with his lantern mm -hmm. and then that reminds yeah. me of kwame anthony appia and the notion of like cosmopolitanism or your global awareness is what ties you to yourself and and i i don't know that it was based on that line but it's also just like lamp and revolution and then um you know the, the rest of the poems in certain places where they went um as well as as your first uh, what is it Holderland Path um, mm -hmm. pro prose piece it kind of also reminded me in some weird way uh, of Althusser or like how you know pure Marxism would say uh, we don't need a vanguard right and then that mm -hmm. that that kind of goes back to like you know more of this kind of stuff of what's going on or like it sounds like what you heard in that interview with the person who wants to make sparrow burgers. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, how do we negotiate revolt or revolution in any isolated sense anymore? Yeah, I mean, and this is like this is one of the the questions. Also, I feel like I'm you know dealing with like because you know you bring up Althusser and and Marxism and you know Holderlin and there is this, this weird through line from from Holderlin to Marx because you know the relationship between. Holderlin and Hegel, and we're at this weird historical moment, right, where this kind of conservatism of of a certain way of thinking about history is kind of crashing down around us, and yeah, and so like we're we're kind of dealing with you know you brought up sort of the the word enlightenment, right? I mean, just it's in the book. Mm -hmm. There's the 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 I think that's really what I'm grappling with maybe more now than than in this book but just as a person it's like you know the enlightenment has led us to some remarkable places and some has has opened up some some beautiful ideas but it's also created some terrible contradictions for for people in the world who don't have a say in liberalism's labor and so it's really it's really hard to kind of sort out like yeah what's what's going on and what's going to happen with a club in one end and a pistol in the other <laughs>
Theosops, foreskin of wind, still surrounded by blood, poverty, and the uneven caresses, lying at the bottom, dreaming, dreaming, days of complete idleness, urinating without rejection, transparent at five in the afternoon, now rising, now setting, a windbreak of gum trees, etc the edge of time, etc. This term, CSOP, I completely struggled to, to figure out and find, and I loved that because it struck me that it was like a, an occasionalism or like a nonce or, you know, that you reserved a place for this term 
in the first line, um, you know, that that's kind of a nod word. And then that offers it like this, this kind of dangling aspect. But at the same time, the way you treated it, it, it almost wields itself into language. So it, it's born. That's a beautiful way of describing it. I never really thought about it like that because it was not intentional for the for the word to be a non-word. Um, I entirely thought that it was a word to describe a particular kind of fruit that I had read in Aimé Césaire somewhere. That I sort of hallucinated this this kind of language in the landscape of um, Césaire's work. So I was thinking that this was a fruit but um or a fruit tree some kind of fruit so i didn't really think that um that it was a non-word but then i was completely delighted that when um during the sort of copy editing process for the book the uh, the copy editor wrote can I find this word? Is it real? And I said, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, this is not a word. So I'm so happy that it's not a word, Um, but it has all the sensations of the word that I want it to be. So, yeah. I mean, I love that. It's like, it totally is like wielding itself through your like memory. And, you know, there's just some, I mean, yeah, because also in the modern era or whatever, the contemporary era, you know, when you go to Google something and you get no results, it's that's it's a pretty interesting place to be in. So does that mean that through Césaire, was it like maybe a native term for Césaire? You know, the thing about Césaire's work, right, is that it is the like linguistic specificity of that particular landscape, landscape Martinique yeah. in particular. Um, so, but, and he, yeah, it, and a, a lot of the language is, is floral and fauna and... Yeah, so I think that I was thinking I was kind of evoking some kind of lush, I don't know, tree, landscape. And I wanted it to be, um, but in the landscape of poetry, like in, in in the poetry world, you know, that I was, it's also like, you know, the, the, the level it's not necessarily even Martinique, but it's like Césaire's Martinique in Césaire poetry. So the landscape is language. And I wanted it mm-hmm. to be that productive or uh, kind of almost imagination that we borrow in the process of reading. Um, so, uh, I, and I think that that speaks to a lot of my work is I feel like there's it's it has adjacencies or is is in conversation or dialogue with so many other writers um, because the act of writing for me is so deeply embroiled and braided into the act of reading and I think that is perhaps the most um, the closest thing that would come into kind of this aspect of divination um and you know walter benjamin says reading is telepathy
and I know that you you wrote this book, you know, over over a number of years, right? Or you were you were kind of doing all that process of creating a book, like imagining, thinking over over quite some time. So you kind of you you intended for that, but it wasn't just something that happened, or yeah, I think both. I mean, I I trust the kind of metabolism of the body to rearrange the world, uh, rearrange my thinking. I'm very, very slow. Um, and sometimes that's very frustrating, but I think that, you know, I've really kind of learned that there, it is a sort of like sedimentary, almost a mineral process, um, for me personally. And no, it's different for everybody, but, um, for maybe it's also different for for certain kind of different books, but this one in particular, it it took many many years. I I think it would be like probably from like the first opening poem to the last um, one ten years probably. Being prolific to some degree can be directly tied to like per capital production. So I think slowing that down can be a good thing. You know. Yes, I definitely am not. Uh, um, I don't necessarily need to be a commodity, but I, I do want to say that to go back to the working with Wave, um, Jeff Clark was amazing in the cover. I think Jeff Clark did the cover, and then uh, what I loved that he did was to slow down the open, that sort of the opening title pages, where the title is one word on each yeah. page that was totally him and i loved that when he introduced that i thought that was just beautiful like he he understood the pacing he understood the temporality that the book was going for that i was really interested in the page turn again that's an instance of the infra thin that we take for granted but the sort of like the magic of the book for me is that when you turn a page something happens reading the book it it made me think that there's like this for every individual, maybe there's like a hierarchy of of mother, um, in terms of like, you know, whatever you want to call it, universe, metaverse, galaxy, plan, all these kind of things that are lingual or their concepts, and then they may be actual in some sense. I don't know about universe or metaverse, but the way in which we think about it, and then like planet, parent, and you seem to be using mother also in terms of like inspirational forces or, mm-hmm. or, you know, like other, other writers, even that you're like, you're saying that you're adjacent to or inspired by or in dialogue with. And so I'm curious how you see like a system of motherhood. I think like I'm much more literal in many ways um, that perhaps whatever feels abstract is also incredible incredibly literal and bodily like the thinking about mothers and in in thinking about kind of relationships to books and reading I always think you know the language that I have is literally given to me because I have put my mouth I have my mouth has actually articulated the mouths of others right I mean it's like an if I'm reading um Benjamin or Césaire it's like the language that they have spoken, my mouth as I'm reading them is actually, it's like I am, you know, it's almost like the superimposition of mouths. Like I'm actually making my mouth into those shapes and uh, making those sounds. And the language that I know that I speak is a composite 
of all the mouths, all these mouths speaking. And there's this sort of, it's much more, it's, I think it's less hierarchy than a kind of superimposition or just nesting. It's just the coeval, co-presence of all these uh, mouths, but, uh, you know, in, in a very physical, but also um, spiritual way. It's the practice of writing as a spiritual um, practice. And by spiritual, I just mean sort of the way that we connect with one another and with the world um, and, and the way that we imagine perhaps a kind of cosmos or interrelatedness. One thing, too, that I, I saw and viewed and saw videos of, and I've, I'm, now I've, I mean, I, I know that I missed out. Uh, at Mocha Tucson, you, you, you turned this kind of performance into a transformative experience. So the poetry reading kind of became dance and came back again. And I, I can't imagine how many of us actually missed out on this. Um, but Oh, I missed out too. I missed out too, because I, you know, we installed the show and I was going to do this performance, but we, well, I got COVID. And so oh, I gave, wow. I also gave the curator, Laura Copeland COVID. So I was not at the opening and Laura was not at the opening. So I, I still have yet to do, but um, because oh. we really wanted to do something like this. I, I, the book to me, it has uh, this, you know, it has many other lives. And one of it is this real life, kind of real time performance. Um, but uh, so yeah, you, you didn't really miss out or, or if you missed out, then I definitely did. You know, this book, obviously formatting wise, it, it, it has such, such a character of uniqueness and, you know, how was it working with, with Wave to, uh, you know, put this together in the way that it is where like you have the knockout pages that are black pages with white font, but also dual in uh, lingual approach. And, you know, like, did that come from you? Was it collaborative? You know, how did that process go when you were putting the book together as an artifact itself? Yeah, so I knew exactly when I sent it to them, it's really the way it is. Uh, because I'll just say that the first thing that the book started as a kind of experiment in projection. So the the kind of 90 or so black and white pages are a series of projections and it's a kind of performance that I do. Um, and that was just an experiment that I started because I was playing with a certain kind of time difference between language. I was really interested in, um, so what would happen is I would project the English text and I would be speaking in Chinese and the room would be entirely dark and you would just be reading and, but my reading would not be synced up, you know, or I would usually fall out of sync or sometimes I wouldn't say anything. There'd be silence. So there's the act of reading and the act of listening. And I wanted to sort of kind of just play with and think about the time difference between languages, between kind of the different senses of apprehension um, in our own bodies. And yeah, so I was, because I was really interested in the concept of uh, inframance and Duchamp, which is the infrathin, mm, yeah. you know, and, and in Duchamp, that's like the fourth dimension, right? Duchamp is a really um, kind of big person for the beginning of thinking about this book. And, and um, another thing is in the inframance is that the kind of the opening sequence of the black and white pages 
begins on page 31, I think, of Agua Viva, Clarice Lispector's Agua Viva. So the language mm. moves from, and again, I think that was to play with the inframons there, with the ultra thing, thin in thinking about it, a book that can start kind of be emerge or just occupy, be happening, occur, take place within or on page between page 31 and page 32 of Agua Viva, let's say. Um, yeah. It is about kind of counting time. So much of it is about counting time and asking for an account of time. And I think to return to the question of, of mothers, the big mother there is the, the question of redemption, right? I mean, the mother that is the unanimous or, or the mother that we're waiting for to, to say, oh, it's okay. Do you prefer wine, beer, a type of liquor, or something else?
I like red wine. I prefer wine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, any 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 type of red wine, like specifically? Um, I usually like uh, Rioja. You know, I would like if you'd asked me about a year ago, I probably would have said red wine, and uh, but now I don't really drink just because of like health health stuff, and so I I actually just had, which is this is really I probably shouldn't even say this on on air or any any i shouldn't this shouldn't be archived but i had a non-alcoholic german uh german non-alcoholic beer which was it's kind of terrible because it just doesn't you know it doesn't taste great it doesn't get you tipsy um but but yeah i guess for for the i was telling my dad um who's here visiting and uh i said i think it's just you know kind of for the for the um for the memories you know so next question, tell me about three books you've, you're currently reading or you've recently read. I'm reading Hiromi Ito's Thorn Puller right now, but I don't really get to read much these days <laughs> because of children yeah. um, and family. But that's what I'm reading. That's one that I'm definitely reading. Oh, I'm well, one that I'm um, excited to read that I have on the table that I'm going to read soon is... Makunaima, translated by Katrina Dodson. Oh, nice. uh, that, yeah. And I will say that another book that is right there that I'm going to read also is uh, Keith Waldrop's um, Light, Where There Is Light. I've had that book for, uh, I mean, that book I have never read, but I, I've been wanting to read, but I think it's sort of one of those books I just feel like, uh, I don't know, it's so intimate. So yeah. I never have read it, but I'm going to, yeah, that's, that's something that, that is right there. So I just finished uh, this book called Victorine by Maud Hutchins. I'm doing this like NYRB challenge for myself, which I did a couple years ago, which, where I read a hundred NYRB books in a year and so and then last year I didn't do it but I did read quite a few of them um and then this year I'm trying to read 100 more and then I'm kind of done with NYRB for for a while but so I'm so all the books I'm gonna list are from NYRB because that's kind of all that I've been reading so yeah I just I just read Victorine which is uh sort of this this novel about a a young woman it's kind of a coming of age novel it's kind of like a this bizarre look at, or a look at kind of the bizarreness of like repressed American youth and sexuality. And it's just a very weird and, and beautifully written book. Uh, and then I read a book called Existential Monday um, by Benjamin Fondane, who is a mm -hmm. Romanian poet who wrote in mostly in French and died in, I believe at, at Auschwitz um, just before it was uh, liberated uh, amazing amazing book of his philosophical writings um and this is something that i've kind of been going back to our novels by uh, george simonon both his his magret uh crime like crime kind of detective novels and then some of what he calls his like um roman Dürer, his like hard novels so I've read a bunch of those too. I mean, he's just such an immersive prose writer and yeah, they're just, they're dark, but they're really, really good. For you, Lynn, kind of based on 
stuff I've been reading about your work and, and, and the book, of course. Um, do you use any kind of tarot or chance system? And if so, which deck or system is your favorite? I don't use any tarot. Okay. Um, and, but I remember that my friend had, I, I have a, a writer's deck. It's a classic writer's deck, but I don't use it at all, really. Um, chance. I don't mm. use any kind of formal forms of any formal kind of chance operations or or divination processes um but i definitely believe in the spontaneity of correspondence between you know some kind of congress between language and perhaps the cosmos good to know i i was curious so i'm putting out there and it's interesting because we get chance back from chance yeah. Well, I'm interested. What kind of what parts of the book maybe that would alert you or leads you to to that question? Well, I, your book made me think a lot about forms of mother and motherhood, or how we talk about things in terms of something that might be as as we colloquially might say, like you know, bigger than us. Or, and it felt like there was in these spaces between birth and non-birth you know it made it made me think of chance or it made of, of tarot or something like that and mm. um and i know that um i mean i myself i i i do e ching divinations occasionally for big 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 questions um, yeah and so i just i just you know i was just curious no that's such i mean such an interesting question i don't think i've ever been asked and i was but i definitely Again, like I believe in, I have certainly um, a deep kind of uh, belief in, in chance and spontaneity of being. So, yeah, it, that's it's just interesting for me to know um, your, your, how you read. Thank you. Okay. So, Joshua, your personal question. What are your favorite okay. shoes to wear on long walks or hikes? Oh, gosh. I mean, I take a lot I, of long walks, yeah. so I was curious about that, but o only in terms of... I know you to eat, you know, take it seriously. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, I'm definitely not a gear guy, but I, um, when, uh, so for walking in New York, I just, I like wearing light shoes, like new balance is my go-to yeah. nothing fancy. And then for, for hiking and like for walking around Marfa, um, I wear these, uh, I guess they're called a solo or a solo. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, boots, yeah. Um, the Vibram sole, high, kind of high top. Um, and those, that's what I did. Uh, yeah, the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier with, and what I've done a lot of, um, yeah, kind of just hiking uh, with. But, but yeah, lighter. I, I discovered when I did this, my walk, um, across texas was i started off with a really light shoe and then i shifted to a heavy shoe is that how it worked i can't remember i did one way or another um yeah. i think i and that was a disaster because i learned that uh you should never switch like shoes dramatically change the kind of shoe that you're wearing when you're doing a super long walk like that because you're um you know, your the, you'll get shin splints, which is caused by the muscle and, you know, one part of your leg developing faster than the other. And then it starts to kind of just 
yeah, destroy your your leg. Um, so that that's my that's my big takeaway from like long distance walking is is wear your shoes in first before the big walk, and then also don't switch shoes mid walk. Um, this is the one everybody you know has trouble with, and it's you get one album to listen to for the rest of your life. What are you going to listen to? You know what? It's I will say it's the Hilda von Bingen. The hymns. I will choose that because that's that will. Yeah, that will be enough. Okay. I know it's going to be harder for Josh because I, I he yeah, he listens to music much more than I do because he can listen to music and do other things. I'm a I'm a sort of. I can't do anything. Yeah. If there is sound, so if I listen to mm. music, I'm sort of fully listening to music. But he can read and, you know, write and. But do I all don't this. walk while I listen to music. I or I never I never listen to music while I walk unless it's just like around. Marco. Well, see, the thing is, now I'm just like. The box sweets are pretty good. Mm. I would do that too. I'm yeah. going for like the no language music or the, <laughs> yeah, like, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the, I can say the album that I've listened to almost incessantly, like for the past two months have been some like albums by a friend of ours, uh, Christopher Owens, whose band, like his band girls, um, I've been listening, yeah. they had, yeah, two two full length albums and an EP, and I've been listening to to those a lot because uh, I drove cross country, and he's just such an, an incredible songwriter. There, and there are a lot of yeah, a lot of albums by friends of ours that I that I love and listen to a lot. But yeah, I saw them saw them in Brooklyn a, a couple of times. It's cool that you're you're friends with them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, he's such yeah. a great songwriter. I mean, yeah. his, really his lyrics are Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah it's just incredible. like it's such a like he he played we had a poetry festival here and yeah, I somewhere. I sort of organized it and um, he was the I invited him to come out and he came out and so that was kind of how we got to be friends. Um oh, but yeah, so amazing. he's I mean, he's probably my like one of my favorite living songwriters, if not of, of like my generation. I wanna do some laughing too 
Sometimes, darling, you just need someone else. 